1: Good evening. Good evening, or morning, or, morning. or afternoon, or afternoon. whatever, is, whatever relevant is relevant for the part of the, the world, of the world you, are in. you are indeed Welcome, welcome, to, welcome the event to the horizon, Event Horizon, where the impossible, where the impossible happens. happens. Join us each Join us week at this week time for a this journey, journey, journey into science, science fiction, fantasy, and science, science fact. fact, in all, their, in all forms. their forms. The Event Horizon the event features, features, features. Writers, 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 lecturers, artists, artists filmmakers, and other talented creators of the fabric of this marvelous continuum we call Science Fiction. I'm your, host, I'm your host, Gene, Gene Termbeau, founder, founder and station manager, manager for Krypton for Radio. Radio. With me is Susan Fox, Radio. Fox the station executive producer. This evening, this evening, we do record the in the evenings regardless what the time zone is and part of the world. Our guest is G.D. Fox, historian,
2: author of Blood in the
1: Skies, and the upcoming first installment in the Cycle, a monster's coming of age time story. He has also he has written a also great written many articles, great articles on Steampunk, Steam Steam mostly, punk, appearing, mostly on appearing on, tour on tour. Com, and is generally and is considered, considered, to, be considered to be the unofficial voice of the voice of movement. Steampunk movement. Mr. Fawkeson, welcome, welcome, to, the welcome to the Event Horizon.
0: Um, the author of uh, the first in two different trilogies, which I consider very ambitious indeed, um, Blood in the Hello. Skies of the Hellfire Cycle and uh, Ur- the Ouroboros Cycle, Book 1, A Monster's Coming-of-Age Story, plus uh, countless, uh, well, you've probably yeah. counted them, actually, short stories scattered across the steampunk world. And uh, what are we going to discuss tonight? Um,
2: well, the uh, the Ouroboros Cycle is probably the best place to start. It's uh, the most recent uh, novel that I have, a monster's coming of age story, and it's also the one that's gotten the largest response from my fan base, which is well,
0: it certainly is. I was going into this book thinking it was, you know, Jane Austen with, you know, Pride <laughs> and Pride and Prejudice and werewolves, and it really wasn't, was it? <laughs> no, it, there's it's a sort of, very sort of realized sense. world that we jump right into with no very little introduction, and I like it that way.
2: Good, good, good.
0: Uh, how much can we talk about? I don't want to, you know, be accused um, of spoilers.
2: Cause... <laughs> um, we can talk about a fair amount. Obviously, you know, some aspects, you know, I, I may not necessarily want to delve into some of the big reveals as the the book progresses. Um, so just about half then. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, there, there are a couple of twists, and you probably know which ones I'm, I'm thinking of that I may not want to give away. But in fairness, since the, the sequel is going to be coming out in just a couple of months, it's coming out um, I think we're, we're releasing uh, in February. Um, February
0: you know there, there is a,
2: a fair amount we can discuss.
0: So both of these uh, cycles feature strong female leads who are very different from each other.
2: Uh, yeah they are extremely different. Um, Dr. Uh, Varanis in A Monsters Coming of Age story is one of the reasons why I enjoyed writing a Monsters Coming of Age story so much um, is that because uh, it was the first time I'd really sort of delved into doing that kind of, of narrative where you so you start with the main character, um, you know, and in, in, she's in her mid-teens, she's in a society that has, you know, it's, it's uh, France in the uh, 1860s. So mm-hmm. her entire life, she's basically been um, sort of denied agency and self-determination by her society. And it's really the only degree of support she gets in in terms of independence is from her grandfather, which is remarkable um, for the time, but I think very appropriate for, you know, the type of character he is. Um, and you see her going from that kind of situation to nevertheless um, sort of breaking free from it and and, you know, sort of exploring the world on her own terms, becoming her own Person, and then obviously, um, you know, sort of coming into contact with and embracing the supernatural um, that is sort of concealed uh, all around her. And I just found that really enjoyable because, in most of the writing that I do, you know, I I have to say I I really enjoy strong female characters. I like strong characters, period. But I think, um, you know, our literary conventions, our literary history tends to, you know, downplay the strength in female characters in favor of the strength of male characters. And I like. Um, to sort of have a balance between the two, which I think is appropriate. Um, and so, normally, you know, for example, with the, the Hellfire Chronicles, um, you know, all the characters presented in that, they're adults, they're at least in their 20s, they're, you know, they, they've already been relatively established in their careers, and it goes from there. With the Monsters Coming of Age story, um, you, know, you basically see the process of Varanis going from, from being a, a young woman. Um, who hasn't, you know, been been really given agency um, to the process of her obtaining it and defining herself and then becoming an adult and the kind of adult she becomes. And then, of course, the series progresses from that point. But I enjoyed the process of writing that coming-of-age aspect. Very much which so. was very worthy, I realize.
0: But. You don't have to do nearly as much uh, world-building in the Arubaros cycle than in the... Hellfire Chronicles. My goodness, um, you jumped right into that, and I, I maybe could have used a little more geography, or possibly planetography. It,
2: um, <laughs> it took yeah, me a no, while to
0: figure uh, out what was going on and what's an IOT?
2: <laughs> yeah. No, I certainly not it Well, the thing with the uh, with Hellfire Chronicles, it's actually um, related to a uh, an indie uh, video game that's being developed by a company I work with, uh-huh. um, and so most of the the terminology and geography presented in that. Um, is going to be presented in the video game. The problem is it's a, it's an indie company, um, which means that the staff available to do the programming is very limited, and so there was a uh, significant delay on the release for the game. So there was expected to be you know, this accompanying uh, video game that would go hand-in-hand with the book around the time of its publishing, uh, which is part of the reason why there isn't as much contextual information, because the idea is the two would sort of provide context for one another. And you know can as
0: you, can you describe that or is that too much of a spoiler
2: um, no it's I think it's a little bit of uh, much of a spoiler I'm, I'm pretty sure that the, uh, the the company would like to be able to, to sort of reveal um, you know the the game when they're ready um, and to, and to sort of have the focus beyond that which really is you know was really sort of the intent it was supposed to coincide with it um, but I am nevertheless very happy with uh, how the book turned out. Um, I think it was enjoyable for me to write, at the very least. Oh,
1: yeah. Well, this is always the, the difficulty when you're working on uh, cross-development or transmedia development, uh, development in two different media. And exactly. And uh, uh, the trick with game programming is that it's very difficult to schedule innovation.
2: Exactly.
1: And that's probably the, the, one of the roadblocks they've found themselves bumping into.
2: Yeah. Well, and, th- and the big thing, the, you know, the, the guys I was working with, this guy, the reason why I did the novel is, um, I'm the head of the writing team, uh, mm-hmm. for the company. Um, so we basically, you know, we constructed the world. Um, and, uh, and that's why I did the novel. Um, but the, the guy we have, um, as the creative director for the video game, he's, uh, a professor at SCAD. Um, uh-huh. down uh-huh. Yeah. And it, and that's, it really- uh,
1: for the, for the listeners, that's, um, uh,
2: it's oh. like the it's, it's, it's Savannah
1: College of uh, Art and Design.
2: Yeah,
1: It's where half the half the professional animators on the planet come from.
2: Yeah, and it's and, and really I mean, the the team working on there really really great guys to work with. So the thing with him is, you know, because he teaches at Scad, he wants to make this an innovative next generation thing that's going to revolutionize you know, mm-hmm. the video game, which is which is great. But then of course it means that that's part of the focus for the construction of the game, which I think is certainly part of the reason why there's been a delay on it, because he, he doesn't want the technology to be behind the times when it's released, which, you know, has benefits and, and downsides to it. Um, but, you know, there you have it. Um, but yeah, with the, with the uh, Orboros cycle, um, the, the second book, obviously, you know, since we have the coming of age, story in the first one the second book obviously picks up when she's an adult when she's you know fairly well established um, with her her interaction with the supernatural that exists in the world um, so that's going to be much more in line with uh, with the other writing I do where the characters are are adults and they're established but at the same time, I still, you know, intend to have certain, uh, you know, a certain aspect of of character growth because I think that's very important. Um, And she's going to be uh, uncovering information about the world she's in, about herself, about her past, about her family. It's very much a a Varanis family story, um, which, um, you know, I I enjoyed writing and uh, and I think the fans of the series are are going to enjoy as well.
1: So tell us a little bit about uh, the genesis of the character.
2: Well, it's very complex. Um, the The series itself is something that I've been working on for I think about ten years now, um, and so the the aspects of setting, the specific supernatural groups, the Skyons, which are my interpretation of werewolves, and the Shashivani, which are my interpretation of vampires, um, the the various characters, the various family lines, and, and uh, the various aspects of plot, because um, it really is this very large nebulous setting. The Ouroboros Cycle you know, wrestles with a lot of that and brings a lot of it in, but actually I've got several other storylines that I've sort of teased my, my fans with um, that I would like to write that deal with characters who may be secondary characters you see only a couple of times or might not even be seen at all in the Ouroboros Cycle, but they're still very important to the larger setting as a whole. Um, and... All of that, as it was being developed, was sort of this nebulous web of characters and ideas and organizations and secret societies and plots and, and storylines. And so, you know, as it all came together, I eventually decided that the way I wanted to introduce the setting was uh, was with Varanis, um, because you know what happens with her is she she begins as a you know as a normal. mortal person and then she becomes sort of inducted into the secrets of the supernatural. So I think that's a a fairly effective way to sort of present it to the viewer. Um, You know, I wanted to have her be um, be some type of intellectual um, because of course the, the Shashabani, if you've read the book, they're, you know, you know, they're, they're very intellectually based. They're, um, they're, they're sort of uh, scholars. Um, And so that was a natural fit there. And also it just sort of felt right for the character To have her be a a scientifically minded person because of course that that will lead her to challenge the conventions of the society she's in Um, it creates an immediate conflict um, between her and her self-identity and the conventions of society around her because of course at the time um, you know mid to, to late 19th century the idea that that women would be involved in science a very unfamiliar concept and actually one thing that's interesting is she's um, a, a small aspect, a very small aspect of her, um, specifically in terms of uh, her history, is based off of a French woman named Madeleine Bress, B-R-E-S, uh, who was actually the first French woman to obtain a medical degree, which she received in, I think it was 1870. It might have been 1869, but regardless. Um, and so, you know, and so I sort of modeled the, the early uh, situation, you know, um, starting off at 16, the progression of it off of that, Um, because it really was just such an unusual thing at the time. Um, And it was just very fascinating to explore it. And one thing that I really uh, enjoyed with doing the research for the book and for the character um, is the the discovery that actually in the 1860s in France, um, it was extremely liberal and forward thinking in terms of women's education, which people don't necessarily realize. Um, and the big reason for this was that the I think it was the Minister of Education um, was a, a very very progressive, uh, liberal minded individual and at the same time he had a tremendous amount of support in this, in, in sort of the, the modernizing of the education system um, from the Empress uh, of France the Empress Eugénie, um, who was once again very very strongly in favor of, of women's education and, and improved situation for women and so forth um, and, you know, and so the idea of a a French woman of means, being able to sort of, you know, through through her own uh, force and energy, but at the same time supported um, by by outside forces, being able to become a fully accredited medical doctor was actually a very uh, plausible, if extremely radical thing for the time. Um, And of course, you know, when I discovered that, obviously, you know, had to be it was almost perfect timing, as it were.
0: Was Dr. Bress herself uh, relegated to women's issues, or did she slip she away yeah. and, and fight in
2: the war as, as a man? Um, well, it's interesting, actually. She, um, yeah, she was relegated to women's issues. Actually, um, for the majority of, of early female doctors, um, that it was sort of assumed that oh, you're going to you're going to do work with um, you know with with women's health and, and you know child uh, rearing and, and uh, you know. Uh, pediatrics and that sort of thing. The Stuff that
0: the boy doctors didn't want to do.
2: Exactly. And, <laughs> and and because and because of the time, I mean we, we have to remember it's it's really sort of horrifying to think of it, but for most of history, the the primary concept of women has been their role as you know, as, as childbearers and child rearers. And it's it really only has been, you know, the, the most recent couple of generations that we've been able to break away from that concept. Uh, which I think is very important. I think it's very important to the developments of modern society um, But you know, but uh, of course Dr. Bress um, She she did um, She was sort of relegated to to women's health and to child health, but at the same time if I recall um, She served as a nurse uh, Obviously she couldn't be a doctor in the in the war because she was a woman Which is why the the specific incident of disguise happens with Varanus uh, in similar circumstances, but um But she served as a nurse during the Franco-Prussian War, uh, which was once again part of the inspiration for Varanus going in and doing her own medical work during the conflict. I find it
1: fascinating that... uh, uh, Okay, let me restart that question. Okay. You have a strong foundation in history... Uh, for for the world that you create and mm-hmm. yet you extend it uh, to create your own um, to create your own universe that your characters can live in uh, how much more of of oh, this is I've got I'm yeah, sorry I'm struggling question, I'm struggling please. Susan can you can, can you well, figure out where I'm going a lot,
0: here a great deal of um, a short story, so I'm I'm seeing the possibility for a lot of you know shorter works wandering off into different corners. We have uh, absolutely. Yeah. There, um, there are I, a number of, of Russian legends I can see uh, <laughs> being explored here.
2: Um, well, and actually one of the one of the things that I have considered doing I don't know exactly when I would do it, but um, because I have all these these you know various um, aspects of the Arbro Cycle setting. That I would like to explore. I've actually considered doing um, one or more anthologies of short stories in the setting, exploring, you know, other aspects. Um, You know, because there's there's whole family histories that I want to delve into. There's um, there's a secondary character, um, Niccolò Pavone, uh, who's this uh, Italian. Spy. Oh, um, was he's incredible.
0: fascinating. I yeah. want to see more
2: of him. Um, well, and, and one of one of the fun things is um, with with Niccolo and the Pavonis in general. The Pavonis, you know, they're this they're this um, family of spies and, and assassins and uh, smugglers that have been around since the Renaissance. And um, and I've really wanted to do. I actually have a whole series that I want to do with the family in. The, in the renaissance um when they you know when they first sort of uh shift over from being merchants um you know, venetian merchants over to so being these, are
0: they these supernatural planets. too or
2: no they're yeah they're perfectly human right. um but and the part of the reason why i want to do that is because you know with the with the Ouroboros cycle we see very much the supernatural in the world um and of course we're seeing it through the eyes uh, of you know people who either are supernatural or closely associated with the supernatural, And I, I sort of want to do stories, uh, do some stories with people who are interacting with this world where so much is affected um, by these, you know, by these vampires and by these worlds and by these cults. Um, but at the same time, they're not inducted into these secrets. So they're approaching it from a completely human standpoint. Um, and that's something I want to do. I want to do a short story um, detailing why Niccolo and, and William, Verona's grandfather, are such good friends. Um, you know, there's a there's a whole range of things, um, and I, I you know I actually have um, uh, there was a serial I did, The La Poca, which is set in Mexico in the mid 20s, um, and that deals with characters from the setting. It's in the same setting, um, and actually Pavones from the 20s make an appearance, um, and that's a lot of fun. But it's it's such a large setting, and part of the the difficulty when writing in this I love world building, I love constructing. Environments. Part of the problem is the the larger and more complex you make them, the harder it is to sort of get that tunnel vision necessary to write a story. Because, of course, you know, when you're writing a story, it doesn't matter how large the world is, the story and the characters and the plot has to be that focus. It has to be the relationship between the characters and the events that happen to them. And if you try too hard to show everything in the world, you just lose the story. Um, So that's always the challenge.
1: A very easy trap to fall into. I mean yeah. it's it's uh, requires a tremendous amount of concentration on, on what you're doing. The the
0: uh, but he's got a whole world here and he's not doing it, the the typical exposition core dump that you often do Oh yes, oh story. yes. You're you're in it. You're in it with with uh, Varanus and, and often run it. And
1: and getting back to what you were saying before about um, uh, the, essentially two different classes of people, the 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 uh, the mystical types and the non-mystical. Yeah. Um, uh, this was f- very reflective of what uh, Victorian uh, Victorian opinions and views on science were at the yep. time. It's yep. um, because science was still in uh, in a period of, of rapid growth and they were sort of stumbling around working on... Uh, uh, working on a foundation of a cross between science and religion, often not being able to tell the difference and, um, and attributing all sorts of things to mystic vapors and, 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 uh, and and this sort of thing, and it appeared to many, especially the uneducated, as though they were dealing with the mystic arts and not science.
2: Oh, absolutely! I mean, it's and, and really, so, and
1: a lot of their society was built around these sorts of ideas.
2: Yeah, well, and, and I mean, and the whole thing was Victorian secret societies abound, which was a lot of fun. Um, you know, I mean, and, and, and you well, know, like
0: they still do. If they if you oh, that, yeah. then they wouldn't be secret.
2: Um, but but the I mean the, the level to which. Um, you know, you, you have, you know, and and not even necessarily secret societies, but the clubs you belong to, um, what school you went to, the, the sort Mm -hmm. of bonds that you have outside of your immediate society, but that you nevertheless have with certain small groups of people very heavily influence, um, the, the way that, you know, you sort of perceive the world, the people you work with, how you, you make your decisions, um, you know, and it's—I mean—and it's sort of in a on a level that we don't necessarily think of today. And it's, uh, it, it's perpetuated into the late 20th century in England, for example, with the uh, the, the universities and the, the civil service. Whether you went to Oxford or Cambridge, um, the old but, school you know, time it, exactly. And it's and it was very very strong. There's actually there, there is actually a wonderful um, British television program called Yes Minister, which um, mm-hmm. sort of it's wonderful comedy. It lampoons. It's in the 80s, I think, and it lampoons the civil service uh, in this Mm -hmm. wonderfully composed way. But one of the big undercurrents is that the entire civil service is they're all graduates of either Oxford or Cambridge, and then there's intense rivalry inside the civil service over which university you went to. Uh, But it was just, (laughs) you know, but but that kind of thing, you know, has, has been going on since, I mean, it really got very heavily strengthened in the 19th century, but aspects of it, you know, went back before then. Um, but but certainly there's been an anxiety I think that people people had during the Industrial Revolution about the growth of technology um, and and the way that it sort of dramatically you know changed changed the way they lived complete social upheaval um, and I, I think you're you know you're certainly right you know there are aspects of it that a, a lot of people um, sort of regarded as being supernatural and even uh, sort of inherently evil. Um, you know, which is negatively supernatural. And it's actually the Industrial Revolution that broke our society of that concept, which I think is very interesting, because the idea of new technology being something strange and supernatural is not necessarily unusual in the context of history. If you consider the printing press, for example, Mm -hmm. um, when it was first uh, demonstrated, I think, in Paris was where this happened. Um, the gentleman demonstrating it was was considered to be, you know, a servant of the devil, because how else could he produce all of this, you know, paperwork so quickly? Um, you know, and so certainly the idea of, you know, uh, engines and machines and railroads and so forth, people are going to have this tremendous anxiety about that. Early flight man is not supposed to fly, um, that sort of thing. But then when people saw the various technological benefits that were the fruits of the Industrial Revolution, by the end of the 19th century, there's sort of this infatuation with science and technology. And actually one of the things that I find really fascinating about the progression of technological history is that, you know, the fascination with science, technology, and then at the same time nationalism um, really brought us to the horrors of the First World War. And it was sort of this culmination of, of all these various progressions of those different aspects in the 19th century, that were all ultimately interconnected.
1: So, how much, uh, how much would you say that the this social binding of uh, uh, of how people thought about science and technology uh, versus uh, the mystic arts? How much of this informed the creation of your characters in the first place? I mean, uh, I mean, it seems like an obvious question, but um, uh, it, it seems to me that. Given certain circumstances, you could almost, some of these characters almost define themselves by the environment in which they live.
2: Well, one of the things I think is really interesting about characters and character development is, in some respects, characters are timeless. Um, there are certain aspects of personality that are potentially universal throughout. Um, all of human history. I mean, it's part of the part of the reason it's a little bit of a cliche to talk about it But you know some people say oh you can take Shakespeare and set Shakespeare at any time period and the the themes Still carry through and actually in fairness. Um, it's not only Shakespeare that, that gets to have that actually a lot of um, classical literature and, and classical um, theater uh, that applies to because even if certain aspects of the environment and the setting um, and certain views of the characters may be a little bit unfamiliar to us in the modern world. The ultimate drives um, of, you know, of ambition and intellectual curiosity, of greed, of anger, vengeance, you know, all of these. They're, they're very timeless. They're very universal to humankind. And the way that they get perceived, the way that they manifest is, is what's done through the lens of the environment. But it's, it's almost like the light is the same thing. It's just the color of the lens that's being shown through. That's what changes. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what happens when I develop these characters, and it really is a very fun and rewarding process to to do character development, is, you know, I, I sort of approach it from, you know, who is this character? What what do they like? What do they think? What is their personality? Um, and then while I'm developing that, I then sort of integrate them into their society and into their experiences. And their society and their experiences shapes the way that their personality manifests, um, but the personality is still there. So aspects of them would be different if they had, you know, been born and grown up in a different society in a different time. But aspects of them— one thing that I've sort of found with with contemplating this— some aspects of them are nevertheless fairly universal. Um, which is which is really um, to give you an example in uh, towards the beginning of a monster's coming of age story. When uh, when Varanis's father is, is talking to her about you know how she has to get married, she's sixteen, so of course she has to be married,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, and obviously that's the highest aspiration she could ever hope to. Why is she you know fighting him on this? Um, and she you know and she um oh, sorry she's talking to her grandfather about how her father's going to push her to do this, and she makes the comment you know I I could why can't father because she's an only child why can't father get remarried so he can have lots of children and then I can I can be a spinster, the context being I would happily become a nun. Just to be left alone from all this And what's actually very telling about that Is in an earlier time uh, When she wouldn't necessarily have had The opportunities um, that she was Just beginning to get access to Being able to, to go to school Which is a very radical concept in the 19th century um, She actually probably would have Become a nun Because the sort of cloistered contemplative life And especially in the context of being able to Potentially pursue early scientific thought um, as, as a nun As a cloistered individual is a driving aspect of her character Um And so in an earlier time The core of her personality would still be the same It's just the way that it manifests Is what would be different um, And I just find that really interesting That's uh
0: It's she had parenting issues didn't she Like an absent mother <coughs> And two fathers And yep. maybe more later
2: <laughs> Yeah I mean one of the, one of the things with, with Varanus is um you know, she she grows up. Her you know, her mother dies in childbirth, um, and so her and her father, of course, is devastated by this. And um, and so he one of the the subtexts uh, with her relationship with her father, which is really in some respects the core of the conflict between them, because he does very much love her, and she does love him. Um, she just gets very frustrated with him. One of the problems is he's he is trying to turn her into her mother. Because for him, her mother was the paragon of womanhood. So obviously, his daughter would want to be her mother, who she never met. Um, and and the, the sort of the core of the, the stress and the conflict between them is she's an entirely different person from her mother, and her father just can't conceive of that. Um, you know, and and she, is, she has a much closer relationship with her grandfather because in terms of personality, she's actually much more like him. Well, and uh, he's
1: also not trying to control her every move, so there's exactly. going to be an affinity there that w- yeah. she wouldn't have with her own father.
2: Exactly.
1: It's, uh... Arist- in Aristotle's Poetics, which they make you read in just about every <laughs> film school, from one end of the planet to the other, mm-hmm. uh, he makes the case that uh, uh, the story comes from the characters, and the characters come from the story. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, I'm just—I'm fascinated by how different authors balance these two. And some—some some have very character-driven stories, and some have very plot-driven stories. Yeah. And um, uh, where do you find your balance point?
2: Well, I mean, I, I certainly do my best to—to to have a very harmonious balance between them. Hopefully, I'm successful at that. That's certainly the object. Yeah. It's a chicken and the egg problem, no mistake. No, exactly. Um, but the the way I look at it um, is that the two are are very intimately connected um, because the sequence of I mean a, a plot a sequence of events is unless you know except where you know nature and happenstance causes something to happen like a volcanic eruption or or an earthquake or something like that aside from from issues where that is an event affecting the plot um, ultimately. Uh, plots are the develop uh, Development of people uh, Interacting with one another That is what produces plot and story mm-hmm. um, People interacting with one another With their environment and so forth Who wants so, what
1: and why can't they get it
2: Exactly um, And so in that respect uh, Plotline is ultimately derived from the characters Involved with it and Of course when characters are being interacted with By the plot they're interacting with it In turn that can change the sequence of events And so forth but at the same time people are the product of their circumstances as well as the product of their thoughts and ambitions and beliefs. Um, And so with that regard, you know, as the plot progresses, as much as the characters affect it, it affects them because it's part of their life experience and their life experience changes who they are as people or helps shape and and demonstrate who they are as people. Um, And so my, my effort has always been to sort of do that, um, do that sort of uh, harmonious blending of the two, and really, I, I would say that um, when I have a book, um, you know, I figure out what the general sequence of events I want to present. Um, but then, at the at the same time, once I get down and and start delving into exactly how the details are going to work out, I look at how the different characters with their different personalities are going to affect the sequence of events around them, how they're going to interact with them, um, and when I start exploring that, that actually helps work out a lot of fine. Aspects of the plot. You know, this character's doing this thing, which affects this thing, which affects this character, who's going to respond in this way. Um, and and that um, is really the way I prefer to do it. I, I, I sort of like building character and plot sort of side by side and have them crisscrossing.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and it, it, you know, it works for me, I don't know, you know if it works for necessarily everyone, but sometimes authors will, will talk about their characters surprising them. Um, and, and that makes perfect sense to me, because what I have found is if you have a relatively loose sequence of events for the plot, you, you know roughly what the overarching story is going to be, but then you start delving into it with the characters in mind. Um, what you'd originally planned for them to do, for them to say, for them to, to be their reactions, That can change because you're, as you're sort of working around with it, you're remembering aspects of the characters you might not have remembered at the time. Um, And that sort of blossoms into light and you say, oh, well, they wouldn't actually say that. They wouldn't actually do that. They would do this entirely different thing because that's a fundamental aspect of the character that I hadn't thought of. Um, And I just find the, the process of doing that is just very enjoyable. It's a lot of fun. So, in de-
1: looking at the problem from just breaking it down from a purely mechanical standpoint, it sounds like events happen, and they can either be externalized events or internalized events with respect to the character. But you can really mar- map them out, uh, map them out that way.
2: Yeah, um, I mean, absolutely. And, and and the thing is, you have once again, it's. You know, the characters are affected by the way events around them interact with them, you know, we're the product of their experiences. But in the same way, you know, nothing that a person does has no effect on the world around them. Something very, very simple as simple as a particular way they talk to another person or as simple as, you know, choosing to sit at a particular table can potentially have long-term effects depending on what everyone else around them is doing. It's, you know, it's a cliche of a butterfly flapping its wings causing a uh, tornado. Um, And, you know, when you actually delve into it, that is actually potentially very realistic. It may not be quite so severe, but one small activity can kick off a much larger sequence depending on how other people interact with the results of that action and then how people interact with the results of their action and so forth um, and so I find that, that part of writing a story is having all these different characters and the the ripple effects that come from them interacting with the sequence of events around them um, and so personally I like to have a relatively loose plot line when I get down and start you know start really sort of getting into it for that specific reason because I find if If I try too hard to shoehorn my characters into a specific plot and a specific sequence of events, um, it ends up feeling untrue. You know, I I end up forcing them to do things that just isn't in character for them. Um, Whereas if I keep it nice and loose, they sort of inevitably find their own way to tell the story that I'm trying to to tell. But they tell it in a way that's appropriate for their character.
1: So uh, this... Can probably uh, it, it sounds to me like this would lead you to uh, the discovery of other incidental plot lines that you, that you hadn't planned on that that um, sort of carry yeah. that can carry events along on, on the side streets and back alleys while you're telling your main story.
2: Um, yeah, it certainly can. And one of the I mean, in some cases, you know, there, there may be you know. Smaller scenes or subplots that develop as a result of a character interaction, but a lot of what, I, what ends up happening is it gives me ideas for other stories. Um, that's what yeah, I was. That's
1: what I was hoping to lead into.
2: Yeah, I mean that's that's the thing. Well, to give you an example, um, in the in the, the second book, a cautionary tale, for, uh, a cautionary tale for young vampires. Um, there's a uh, a secondary character who's uh, introduced. Um, who was originally just going to be sort of you know a stand-in side character? Nothing really much happens. Um, and actually, no, there were two of them. Um, and I then, having finished the that novel, I then realized that I wanted to do an entirely uh, additional book with those two characters as the central focus because they ended up. Just sort of intriguing me so much with the way they interacted with the main plot, and I didn't want to derail the main plot by exploring that too much. But it may very well be something that I end up doing as its own book in in future. Um, so your
1: so your uh, your writer's bible has sticky notes all over it.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, basically, it's. I, I like to. I mean, the big thing is I like to have it very, as I say, very freeform and very fluid, because once you start you know you can you can plan the plot out as much as you want but once you place those characters in that world in those sequence of events they're going to do things that you don't predict and it's because you know there's some aspect of them that you don't think about until you actually start thinking about them in that time and in that place and then all of a sudden you're like wait a minute you know what was i thinking that's completely ridiculous they wouldn't do that they're going to you know they're going to they're going to they're not just going to leave that Conversation unfinished, or so they're not just going to sort of blithely accept that. They're going to charge in there and demand an answer, um, you know, and and that's going to kick off a whole other sequence of events. So that's that's the process that works for me. You can get very fluid, and I enjoy it very much. Um, now, I won't say that that's necessarily the best way. The <laughs> way um, every, I mean, that's the thing. oh, every I don't, of I don't
1: know. It. I I have to disagree with you there. I mean, I think uh, uh, I think that's pretty much the only way you can approach it because <laughs> if if you're World isn't real enough to you, to to create situations like that. You probably aren't doing it right. I mean, that's that would be the pro- the approach that I would take.
2: Well, that, I, can, I can see
0: you checking the weather reports in eighteen eighty-two.
2: Yeah, such yeah. yes, yeah, so, yeah, such as they're available, which I got to tell you is it's kind of frustrating. Um, although although I will I will tell you one of the one of the really great things about setting a story in. Um, in 1888, um, is that all of the Ripperologists have developed such a, uh, a wealth of period information in the autumn and early winter of 1888 that they do actually have weather reports. Um, of course, the, the unfortunate thing is they only have the weather reports for you know a couple nights around each of the Ripper murders. But you know, but just there is so much information that they've developed and. Made available online, newspaper clippings and and police reports and so forth. That it just it makes context so much easier, whether or not you're doing a Jack the Ripper story.
1: Um, oh, that's which, interesting. I wouldn't which, have thought of that.
2: I found very amusing when I was when I was doing. That. Well, and the
1: same thing would have happened when uh, Krakatoa uh, blew oh, up.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, when was that? 1883. I think so. Okay, we've already
2: passed that. Then. Oh well, too bad. Yeah. But no, but I mean, I, was, I mean, that's, and it's. It's really interesting because when you think about it, um, depending on the way that popular culture interacts with a particular time, and particular place, that actually has an effect on the availability of research material. Because obviously if popular culture is very excited about something, there is a lot of they're information. Going to, they're
1: going to document it very heavily.
2: Exactly. Um, and it really is just, it's a, it's a fa- the whole re- the research aspect of writing is such a fascinating prospect um, you know, for the for the, uh, I, the that never purpose.
1: occurred to me. That never occurred to me that that would be you know, useful. I, I, I mean,
2: absolutely.
0: so when and you're um, on Facebook.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no same that's t- not what I. Well, time yeah, year. yeah. Well, that's oh. true. But uh, you know, it's it's uh, the okay. idea that that uh, that current events can create a wealth of incidental information that can be used yeah. for entirely other purposes,
2: yep. and uh, then also for preservation of that information. Mm-hmm. The resurfacing of it—it it really is just a fascinating process.
1: So, what are you working on next? What's what's um, next I, on the docket?
2: Um, well, um, I I'm part- too.
1: Uh, obviously, or
2: uh, it's or well,
1: no, Ouroboros. The, the,
2: so Ouroboros—it's the—it's the Greek, um, uh, the Greek term which references the serpent <laughs> eating its tail. Yes, um, we're
1: familiar with that from Doctor Who, actually. Yeah. <laughs> familiar with that.
2: <laughs> Um,
1: and it, yeah, and it is actually, yeah, from before that, of course, but I, I came across the term and, and, and remembered it because of Doctor Who.
0: I learned yeah. it from Red Dwarf, so there Yes. Yes. <laughs> it no,
1: it's,
2: it's, really, it's a fascinating concept, actually, the idea of eternity being uh, demonstrated by a creature consuming and growing itself, which is really just fascinating. And it, it actually is related to the very long-term meta plot in the series, which is why I chose it um, as the title. But um, but yeah, I mean the the second book that's done that's coming out um, in uh, early next year. The third book's coming out um, early the year after. Fourth one is going to be the year after that. Um, but actually, what I'm what I'm currently just finishing up uh, is a young adult novel for Soho Press, um, which I can't I can't go into too many details about. They probably wouldn't mind if I did, but I would want to check with them before mm-hmm. I did because it's at oh, such of a stage. But it's but it's a a young adult. Uh, mystery novel and I'm very very uh, excited to be working on it Um, there I mean there's some really just fantastic people over there Um, and and also the the catalog of books they have because they they gave me a bunch to you know to read up on is um, is just terrific they've got some great authors over there so I'm really excited Um, but that's what I've been finishing up on Uh, and then once that's done um, possibly some some short stories uh, in the Ouroboros cycle um, certainly the the next book along in the series that I haven't done yet because um, it's a very long series and as long as I get to keep publishing it I will keep writing them um, actually I'll probably keep writing them even if that doesn't happen But because um, it, it really is just I'm having such a good time writing it and exploring the characters.
1: And what you just said was very interesting. They showed you uh, a number of Titles that they'd already published, so yeah. that you could get an idea as to what exactly they were looking for from you.
2: Exactly, which I, I mean, I think that's really good. I think, I think
1: so. I think so too. And, and again, you know, this just never occurred to me that a publisher would do that,
2: yeah. but I it think
0: makes a small perfect publisher sense. Needs to do that to uh, familiarize potential authors with their product and what they're looking well, for.
2: I mean, actually, because the thing with Soho, Soho is it is the, I believe, the largest independent publisher. In the world, um, but it's it's very well known for its mystery series, uh, and then they recently just started a young adult imprint, uh, which is what you know picked me up. And um, but it, I, I think it just it sort of is a good idea to familiarize um, you know an author with not just you know the the sort of work that they put out, but also just specifically the themes and styles of. The genre that's being written in, because this will be the first young adult novel that I've done. You know, I sort of, mm-hmm. um, I sort of, you know, toyed with the the concept of young adult with the very beginning of a monster's coming of age story, because I was writing, you know, the, the main character uh, as a sixteen year old um, girl, sort of, you know, finding herself in this coming of age story. But then, you know, by the midpoint of the book, she's an adult. So it wasn't the the full story simply young adult. It was just the very beginning that it then progresses into. Uh, you know an adult book um, so you know this is this is a, a new and actually I got to say very rewarding experience for me writing this um, this novel for them because it's such a a new and unfamiliar genre for me but it's also a very exciting genre um, there's just so much I guess energy and vibrancy because when you're when you're writing a teenage character um, you know for for someone that young there's just a, a level of energy and a level of Focus and emphasis, and wonder, and you know, sort of possibility um, that that older people, and then of course older characters, as a result, don't necessarily have. Um, and it really is just—it's it, a very fascinating process, I have to say.
1: It has been a delight talking with you this evening. Uh, I'm—I—I I learned a lot about writing, and I think our listeners will too. This has been like a masterclass in in <laughs> in uh, uh, novel writing. And this is uh, this has been plot and character development, plot and character development as,
0: as they work not only in the narrow world world of steampunk or in you know historical novels or in sci-fi but, but any any storytelling whatsoever.
1: We're we're very glad to uh, we're very glad to have had you with us on the Event Horizon.
2: Well, thank you. This has been a lot of fun.
1: No, we think so too.
0: Keep keep in contact. We'll want to hear about uh, the next um, Ouroboros novel. Absolutely.
1: Yes, when it when it when, uh, and when, when it releases.
0: You can, when you can talk about when, the, the young mm-hmm. adult mystery, let us know. Absolutely, I will,
1: and we'd be delighted to have you back.
2: I would I would love to come back. You guys just let me know.
1: You have been listening to episode forty of Krypton Radio's weekly production of the Event Horizon for November thirtieth, two thousand thirteen. Your hosts have been Krypton Radio Station Manager Gene Turnbow and Executive Producer Susan Fox. Our guest this week has been historian and steampunk novelist G.D. Falkson, generally regarded as the unofficial voice of the steampunk movement. This episode will air again on Sunday, December 1st at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You will be able to hear this episode and others as downloads at the Krypton Radio website and on both iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow, The part of the science officer was played by renowned science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The part of the engineer was played by fandom dignitary Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was played by Corsair's closet producer Christine Cherry, and the role of the captain was voiced by science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents are copyright 2013 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. Stay tuned for more great music and tonight's episode of X-1. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.